0: Ephesians 5, 22-33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and...
1: All right. uh, It's good to see everybody. You know, I think I'm going to try to back up a little bit so I can actually see everybody more. (laughs) All right. So um, it's good to see everybody. We're here. We're here, I think, for the summer, planning to be down here because uh, there's air conditioning, and I know... Uh, You know, people kept asking, why aren't we worshiping downstairs like last summer? Uh, Because upstairs is so hot. And the reason was because we needed to get this room ready. So we had a place to send kids for their program. And, uh, you know, a lot of people helped out last Sunday. I don't know if you saw some of the uh, men moving really big, heavy file cabinets. And then uh, today, uh, Matt, Peter, and Fred, and uh, I think maybe some other people helped clean the room today. So we have a room for the kids. They're in there now. We're down here. Praise the Lord. All right, uh, I'm going to ask if you could just all pray with me. Let's pray before we uh, look to God's Word. God, we thank you just for gathering us here, and we thank you that you give us your Word. And uh, we pray at this time that um, you would be our ultimate teacher, uh, that you would be the speaker uh, to not only our minds, but uh, to the depths of our hearts. Uh, Help us to be shaped and transformed, uh, again, by the story that you tell uh, about who we are, about our lives, uh, about what marriage is. And uh, may we uh, fit Our own personal stories uh, into that great story. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. (coughs) All right. So today we're gonna we've been going through a little series on marriage, and uh, it's been a short series, but we're gonna finish that series today. And uh, you know, I think of course there's a lot more that we could say on marriage, but uh, basically what I wanted to do, my goal here, wasn't to speak to married people and say this is uh, this is how you be married, uh, because obviously everybody here is not married. But what I wanted to do is just give this big overarching vision for uh, God's vision of what marriage is supposed to be so that uh, we can understand uh, how we're supposed to look at marriage. And, uh, you know, part of the reason I wanted to do that is because I think I've been seeing, you know, the modern narrative about what marriage is, I think is, you know, it's a powerful narrative. And I think it's, uh, you know, it has a lot of impact and even, even for Christians, And sometimes it's hard to kind of discern, uh, you know, what the culture is saying versus what God is saying. So what we did is we started by saying this. We said marriage is good, but at the same time, marriage isn't everything. And single life is a fully uh, legitimate, dignified, and honorable option. And marriage is not supposed to be the place where we draw our identity, draw our purpose, draw our self-fulfillment from. Last week, what I wanted to say is that marriage is good, but the reason marriage is good is because of the kind of relationship that it is, and it's a covenant relationship, where two parties are legally bound to one another in this personal and intimate relationship. And ultimately, what we've been saying is that marriage is supposed to be an illustration or a metaphor for our relationship with God. And in fact, the, the blessings that people long for in marriage or the aches that people experience in marriage or in singleness uh, is never going to be fully uh, experienced until the future wedding, until the marriage supper of the Lamb. So that's just a summary of what we've been talking about the last two weeks. Today, I want to cap off this series by talking about the dynamics. Of marriage and the dynamics that take place within a marriage. Now, uh, just to be completely honest with you, you know, marriage sermons are a little bit hard for me. Uh, it doesn't come naturally to me. I know many for many of you, maybe the series on Ecclesiastes was a little bit difficult, but for me, that was actually more natural to my personality. Uh, marriage sermons don't don't come easy to me. And so, you know, as we were uh, driving last week, my wife and I were talking and we're just kind of like talking about the message. And uh, you know, she gave me a little bit of feedback on the sermon, and she said, you know, she thought the sermon would be a little bit more effective or a little bit more powerful if I, I tried to connect these points I was making to uh, real life by using more illustrations and more stories. And uh, you know, I think I think she's right. And uh, so this week, and uh, you know, I was trying to think about some good illustrations and good stories, and it was really hard for me to do that. So I asked her. I said, hey, you know. Do you have any stories you think I should share that uh, might be beneficial to, to the congregation? And she asked me, she said, uh, well, what, what passage are you preaching on this week? And I said, oh, you know, it's that Ephesians passage, and it starts off by saying, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And then she scoffed, right? Kind of jokingly, she said, I have nothing to add to that. <laughs> right? I, can't, I can't help you there. Now, uh, let me just say, right, she, she said it jokingly, so, you know, she, she does believe in the Bible, Right? <laughs> She was just, uh, she was making a joke about it. Uh, But, you know, to put it seriously, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if actually most people, and I think in a place like New York City, you know, read this passage and maybe scoffed a little at what it says, especially here in the beginning. And, uh, you know, I remember officiating this wedding and uh, using this passage as a sermon, and the bride made a request and said, can we skip the part about wives submitting to their husbands? And I think uh, you know, I think that may be somewhat of a natural response because at face value, this could seem like a text that may be a little bit offensive to women in particular, especially if you uh, take on and believe in the modern narrative. Uh, I'm actually not going to talk too much about that, but I thought I should at least maybe say a f- few quick things just to address it from the get-go. And uh, what I would say is, you know, when we look at this text, I think it's important to understand what it's not only saying but what it's not saying here. And... Uh, Again, I don't think I have the time to really talk about it too deeply, but let me just say a couple things uh, that I, I told the bride when she made this request. And I, I made three points. And I said, you know, there, there is a larger context to this passage, and uh, this, this passage is ultimately talking about being right, filled with the Spirit and what it means to walk a life uh, filled with the Spirit. And sometimes we look at this passage and we disconnect it from the verse before, verse 21. Verse 21 which actually calls all believers to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so submission is not supposed to be this thing that is done out of weakness. It's not done out of a sense of inferiority, but submission is something that all believers are called to do as a result of being filled with the Spirit. The second thing I would say is this, and to address husbands, uh, you know, husbands are not... in. Right. They're not tasked to enforce submission, right? That's not the job of the husband. Uh, it's something that wives ultimately do, not because the husband is worthy of it, but as devotion to the Lord. And so therefore, no husband should ever say this to their wife, you know, wife, honey, you're, you're called to submit to me because of what Ephesians 5.22 says, and therefore, you know, I think you should submit to me because if your husband ever does say that, then just point to Ephesians 5.25 and make this next point and say, you know, honey, Paul actually spends more words instructing the husbands to love their wives like Christ loved the church. And that means this, that you are called to die for me. And, uh, and problem solved, right? <laughs> but, uh, you know, again, uh, I, I felt like I should at least say something about it, even though this is not the main point of the sermon. Uh, just in case you're just you know, really turned off by what it says here. Uh, it's actually supposed to be a beautiful thing and uh, something that spirit-filled Christians are supposed to do in living out their roles within the context of a marriage relationship. That's all I'm going to say for now, but here's, the, here's a greater and the bigger point that I want to make, and this is, a, this is an obvious point from this text. And the point is this. You know, husbands and wives are different. Right? Husbands and wives are different. Uh, The secular way to say that may be, you know, men are from Mars and women are from Venus, although I somewhat disagree uh, with some of the things there because I don't think all men and women necessarily fit into uh, certain gender stereotypes, and I think that's okay. But the reason why I point out this obvious point is because uh, differences is actually what makes marriage both beautiful but also very difficult. Diversity can be a good thing, but diversity can also be a difficult thing. Diversity can bring two people in such a way where they complement one another. But diversity can also divide people in such a way that they repel each other. Now, I was reading this book uh, a book a while ago, and uh, one of the chapters was, I, I thought it was interesting, but it was basically surveying uh, the history of feminism. And the author was saying how, I guess during the earlier waves of feminism, uh, feminists like Simone de Beauvoir, uh, she, who, who's famous for the book The Second Sex, which I haven't read, and I'm not an expert by any means, so I'm just summarizing what this author is saying. Uh, you know, she, uh, some, Beauvoir basically said, you know, women should not be identified with men as the reference point. And uh, I think, of course, there is a, a great and a healthy way to, to understand that if it means, you know, men and women are basically uh, equal in dignity and uh, so forth. But... Um, you know, what actually ended up happening is people took that idea and said, therefore, we should eliminate distinctions between men and women. Uh, we should kind of flatten it. And therefore, whatever a man can do, a woman can do and should do as well. And again, there's a healthy way to understand that. But what ended up happening was, uh, as a result of that, uniformity became the only option. Right? When you get rid of diversity, then you're left with uniformity. And when uniformity became the only option... Uh, And the distinctions and differences between men and women were essentially eliminated. You know, everyone was expected to conform to a standard, right? And the standard was ultimately shaped by who? By those who had authority, influence, and power, which were actually men. And so, since men were the ones with power, the standard that was set was something that women had to kind of conform to and kind of, right, uh, in getting rid of these distinctions, in seeking uniformity, not allowing. Women to be women, not allowing men to be men, not allowing um, you know complement complementing things to happen, but to say this you know women you need to be shaped and conform to the standard of men. Now that was early feminism. I don't think it's necessarily true today, but you might be able to see a a similar analogy maybe in race relations. Uh, So for example, when you say let's get rid of uh, uh, ethnic diverse or let's um, let's get rid of racial uh, distinctions. Uh, that divide, what ends up happening is say, well, let's let's seek uniformity then. This is how, this is, a, I think, a false way to seek unity. And uh, usually what happens is the culture or the ethnicity that has a power and influence, a dominant culture, uh, they set the standard, and therefore all other races are expected to suppress their own ethnic identity and conform to this uniform standard. And uh, if you are a part of a minority ethnicity, then maybe that's something you've experienced uh, maybe that's something that uh, you recognize. Uh, but the larger point is basically this. Diversity is a, a good thing. And the way that you, have, you you get unity is not by flattening and get ri- rid of, getting rid of these distinctions and getting rid of diversity and saying everybody has to conform to a uniform standard. But I think the better way is to say this. Look, we're all different. People have differences. And what we ultimately need is unity through love. And so when you have unity through love... Then you begin to appreciate and see the differences in others and see how oftentimes they complement your weaknesses and see how it actually ends up creating a more full and a more beautiful community. Now, that's kind of a long way to express this, but basically what I'm trying to get at is this. In the context of marriage, husband and wife united together as one are two different people who bring a distinct set of roles, gifts, and experiences and perspectives which actually has the power to greatly enrich one another. And that's part of the reason why I don't think compatibility is necessarily supposed to be the foundation of a relationship. You know, if you look at different ads, uh, I pulled this up from eHarmony, but basically eHarmony uh Their motto or their ad is this, and they say, Isn't it time you experience the joy of falling in love with someone who sees you, loves you, and accepts you for who you are? This is a kind of joy that comes from finding someone special with whom you share true compatibility, and it's compatibility that forms the basis of every match we make at eHarmony. Now, I know all online dating services may have different philosophies, but eHarmony, at least, the goal is this. Let's find somebody who is most compatible to you. And of course, I'm not saying compatibility is a wrong thing, and it doesn't matter. In fact, in many cases, compatibility makes things a little bit easier. But what I am saying is this, that compatibility is not the foundation of what makes a marriage work. Marriage is not ultimately about marrying the easiest person for you. Marriage is not ultimately about finding somebody who fulfills your checklist and the things that you want. Marriage is about when two people who are actually not all that compatible in certain areas and in certain things work through these incompatibilities through love and achieve compatibility. It's like uh, the New York Times piece that I quoted last week, and the author said this, Compatibility is an achievement of love. It must not be its precondition because compatibility suggests this, that marriage is ultimately about finding the right person. But it's not. It's ultimately about committing to a person and loving a person who is also committed to you and committed to loving you and uh here's the story part, right? Let me be honest, you know when Jen and I first met, we weren't uh attracted to each other <laughs> uh, we were We started off as we were just friends for a few years, and uh you know. I didn't ask her this, but I would imagine, you know, if she had a checklist about the ideal person that she wanted to marry, uh, I probably wouldn't have uh, met those requirements, right? And, uh, you know, same with her, right? She, um... Wait, that that sounds bad, right? Um... You know, I don't know how to recover from that. Uh, but basically, we didn't meet each other's right, ideal uh, checklist of what we individually wanted. But, uh, you know, I, I will say this, you know, after being married maybe six, almost seven years now, um, you know, a, a lot of the things that I thought would be important to me, and maybe she would say the same thing, uh, actually ended up not really being all that important. And uh, it's the experience in being loved and working out through, working through a lot of the differences that you have that actually uh, make the marriage more fruitful. You see, I I don't think at the end of the day it's about the person and it's about finding the right person because the conclusion is, you know, if we're fighting a lot and if we have a lot of conflict, conclusion, I married the wrong person, therefore I should find somebody else. I made a mistake. But I don't think marriage, marriage necessarily works like that. And I think part of the beauty of marriage is when you have these incompatibilities, but you're so committed to one another in such a way that you commit to even working out through these differences, even to the point through love of appreciating one another's differences, then I think the product actually becomes something that is very beautiful. You see, most of the time, I think when a couple is in conflict of something, it's usually not about some absolute moral judgment. right? For example, couples usually don't fight about whether to rob a bank or not, and if they did, you know, counseling would actually be pretty easy because then I would say, you know, robbing a bank is wrong, so you're wrong for wanting to rob a bank, and this person is right. Most conflict is not of that sort, but most conflict is actually uh, due to different perspectives, right? You place different values on different things and there's no necessarily absolute right or wrong. And so for example, a couple can disagree on how money should be spent because one person will assign value to something a little bit differently than the other person and That's why usually when you're planning a wedding, that's when a lot of conflict happens because you realize that you have such different values and you place value so differently. One person says you're spending too much money on the venue or the food or the, the dress or the tuxedo or the DJ or the photographer and you begin to see that your values don't line up and For many people, maybe that's the first time where you really have to work through these differences. Maybe that's the first time where you really have to know what it is to give up and to die to yourself and to to give up something that you desire so badly. And pretty soon what ends up happening, I think, is we take these uh, just differences, right, The, the diversity, and we turn them into moral absolutes for ourselves. And when we turn them into moral absolutes for ourselves, then we end up judging the other person. Then we end up saying, you're just being cheap, you're a cheap person. Or then we say, you're so irresponsible with money, you're not wise with money, you need to save more. And we cast these judgments on the other person. Why? Because again, we're taking just a difference of perspective and a difference of opinion and we are making them absolute moral judgments in our own eyes. See, when you are in a relationship, it's easy to see the other person and their different perspective as being the the problem, the reason for your conflict. But most of the time, the root of the problem is not the fact that there is a difference of perspective. Most of the time, the problem is that there is pride in operation within the human heart. You see, what pride does is it takes these horizontal differences, these difference of perspectives, and it turns them into a vertical ladder. And therefore, you say, well, I value this, and I'm right, and this is something that's important, and the other person doesn't get that, and the other person doesn't see that. And you're on the top of the ladder, and you end up looking down upon them and casting judgment upon them. And therefore, in the midst of a conflict, because of pride— you begin to not see the pride in your own heart, but you begin to shift blame to the other person, and you say, this conflict is all because of you. And we don't see things in the same way, not because of my pride, but all because of you. And you see, the, the tricky thing about this is, you know, if that's you, right, if that is you, uh, let me say this, there is a good possibility that you don't see pride as being your ultimate problem. Uh, you probably just think that you happen to be right, <laughs> and when and being right uh, becomes more important than being loving and loving to your spouse, then that is probably a good indicator that there is pride operating in your heart. It also, I think, means this: that maybe you view marriage through a system of law rather than through a system of grace. It means you care more about being right you care more about what you feel like you're entitled to, uh, more so than actually loving the other person and laying down your life for the other person and your desires for the other person. And if you have a high view of yourself, then you're probably saying something to this effect. Yeah, I do know that there are things that I need to change about myself, but my faults aren't as big as the other person's faults. My sins are more understandable. Right? My sins are more acceptable. And if you've ever said that, then I would say, most likely, you have an issue with pride. Most likely, you have a heart that is somewhat self-righteous, legalistic, and that's something that you need to repent of. And in my experience, this is the type of person who is going to be most blind to their own pride and to their own sin, and therefore the more difficult person to actually counsel. You know, when we operate on law, we tend to focus on getting what's ours, right? Getting what's fair. And at that point, I think grace basically goes out the window. And let me try to illustrate this point. You know, I think sometimes couples will try to negotiate a deal and say, all right, let's, right, let's make a deal. I'll do this if you do that, right? I'll fulfill my role and my responsibility as long as you do that, and guess what? Jen and I, we did the same thing. In fact, it was actually my idea, so uh, bad on me. But basically, there was a period of time where we were uh, having some conflict about just chores in the house, and uh, you know, it didn't feel like it didn't feel fair that uh, both people were doing like their their job and their role, and so you know, we had a lot of conflict. And basically, what I said was this: I said, "All right, you know, Jen, let's let's do this. How about Monday through Friday, I'll do the dishes." But Saturday and Sunday, you do the dishes, right? Sounds good, right? Sounds fair. But you know what ended up happening? Uh, it would be a Saturday morning, and the dishes needed to be done. And I would say, hey, Jen, it's Saturday. Time to do the dishes. And she would say, yeah, but those dishes are from Friday. The only reason that they're there is because you didn't do it on Friday, And what we end up doing is we begin to argue the technicalities of the law and we become attorneys and we try to prove our case and make our point and the right interpretation of this law that we created to do the dishes. But you know what happens at that point? Uh, You stop caring about loving the other person. Uh, You stop caring about things like showing grace to the other person. And at that point, what you just care about is you know, getting what I deserve. I want to see justice. And that's why I don't think compromise is actually the ideal, although a lot of times, actually, I would say it works. Compromise, I think, is based on this premise of justice rather than love. The ideal is not compromise. The ideal is that both persons would seek to serve one another so much so that they would be willing to give up their own desire, their own justice. Why? For the sake of the other person. Now, if you base marriage uh, on a system of law, I'm not saying that it can't work, right? It very may well, uh, maybe it can work. Uh, But the goal of marriage is not simply for it to work. The goal of marriage is not simply to avoid divorce. The goal of marriage is to grow in love and in holiness. And according to verse 26 we see here, the goal of marriage, I think, is holiness, And although marriage a marriage based on a system of law might work and you might be able to get by, I don't think it's going to flourish in the way that God ultimately designed it to be. Uh, And moreover, it's not going to look anything like what Paul is talking about here in this passage. You see, marriage is ultimately supposed to be this reflection of the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church, his bride. The relationship between Christ and the church is one that is based on a system of grace. And some people might say this, I just don't understand what that means. It makes absolutely no sense to me. Uh, A system of law makes a lot more sense. And what I would say is this, I I would probably agree with you. Uh, I think in a way, a system of law does make more sense. I think that's why maybe moralistic or legalistic religions are somewhat attractive, because if you think in this way, you know, if I do X, y, and Z, God will be pleased with me and God will accept me. That seems to be a very reasonable concept, does it not? But here, here's the issue, I think, with moralism and legalism, is that it can be very limiting when it comes to something like love. How so? You know, if you tell, let's say, if you tell a husband and you say this to him, you know, uh, in order to be a good husband, here's what I want you to do. I want you to find a job and make money. I want you to uh, refrain from abusing your wife. And I want you to do the dishes once a week. Well, a husband may very well do all of these things and fill out the checklist, and they might reach the conclusion hey i 've done my job as a husband, and therefore I must be a good husband, and therefore any issues in the marriage can 't be me because i 've done everything that i 'm supposed to do uh, i don 't i don 't think that 's quite right you see uh, there 's a limit to the love that is shown, and uh, I think maybe the right you know a husband will just do that right what is required. But will they actually actively and limitlessly love their wife? Will they say, you know, I know I'm supposed to do the dishes once a week, but I want to show love to my spouse, so I'm going to do it seven times a week. You know, uh, I don't have to get flowers. You know, I don't have to uh, buy dinner. You know, I don't have to do X, Y, and Z, but I want to do it to show love for the other person. And I think you can only do that when you operate, again, under a system of grace and not under a system of law. Uh, A system of grace says this, I want to outdo the other person in love. Uh, I want to uh, do things for my spouse out of a deep sense of love and devotion. You see, sometimes people respond to conflict, and uh, I don't know if you've ever said this, but they'll say to the other person, all right, just tell me what to do, right? Just tell me what to do, and I'll do it. Just tell me what to do, and I'll satisfy you, and I'll do it. I don't think that's quite a a good question to ask because, again, it's reverting back to this system of law and saying, you know, just give me the checklist and as long as I do the checklist, then I'm doing my job. But it's very limiting because, again, it doesn't open the door to do more than that. It doesn't allow love to be limitless. It doesn't allow love to go to the point of saying, I will die to myself fully and wholly and completely for the sake of the other person. And so because of that, you know, in some ways a religion of grace doesn't make much sense, does it? Someone might say, How can you have the kind of relationship where you have to give the entirety of yourself to the other person? How can you have a kind of relationship where you don't get what you want? To which I would respond by saying this You know, you're right, it doesn't make very much sense. In fact, it is a profound mystery. It's a profound mystery. And you see, that's what Paul says here in verse 32. He says, this mystery is profound. And what mystery is he talking about? Not the one between husband and wife, but he clarifies and says, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You see, the mystery that Paul is talking about is not ultimately uh, the mystery between how a husband and a a wife can love one another in that way, but the mystery is how can Christ love us in such a way? You see, for all the mysteries in the Christian faith, the greatest mystery is this. The greatest mystery is the gospel. The greatest mystery is how a holy God could love unworthy sinners. The greatest mystery is how God could give up so much for a people who were so incompatible with Him. It's unfathomable, and it makes no sense. And in a consumer culture, that doesn't conclude that love is a mystery because you love people who give you a reason to love you. In Christianity, love is profound and mysterious because it calls us to love even our enemy because we're not supposed to love people just because they give us a reason to. And sometimes we're called to love people despite the fact that they give us every reason not to. And as we think about that, that is that is the kind of love that Christ has shown us. That's the kind of mysterious love that we have in the gospel. He loves us not because we give him a reason to love us. He loves us not because we are compatible with him. He loves us in spite of us giving him every reason uh, not to love us. He loves us even though we are wholly and completely different from him and incompatible with him because we're filled with sin. And you see, that, that gospel truth right there, that is the purpose of marriage. That is the vision of marriage. It's not about us. It's not about our own fulfillment. It's not about getting an identity. It's not about uh, saying, my life is complete because I have a spouse. Marriage is ultimately, and this is God's vision for marriage, to put on display, to be an illustration for the intimate and the personal covenantal relationship that we have with Christ through our union with Him, and I think the more our marriages uh, resemble that and point to that, then I think the more we're fulfilling what God's vision ultimately is for marriage. And so I would encourage you: uh, resist the modern narrative, uh, even if you're not married. Resist the modern narrative of saying, "If I get married, then." I'll be happy. Uh, If I get married, then my life will be complete. And if you are married, resist the narrative that says, man, in my marriage we don't seem to get along. Uh, Is something wrong with uh, the other person? Is there something wrong? Is this something that God didn't mean to happen? But understand God's vision, that it is through marriage that we uh, display the love of Christ that he has for us. In a minute, we're going to celebrate at the Lord's table. This is also a meal that is going to point to this future marriage, uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And uh, as we partake in this meal, remember that it is, again, a deep reminder of the deep communion that we have, that God loves us uh, not out of law but out of grace to people who don't deserve it. Uh, Let's pray as we prepare for communion.